0: What if I told you this morning that Jesus' first advent, that is Jesus' first coming, predicts the future for us? See, the future is what we worry about, isn't it? The future is what we are concerned with. Because it's the future that may have x-rays that are revealing. It's the future that may have our children in a car crash. It's the future that may hold cancer or an early heart attack. It's the future in which our stomachs may ulcerate. It's the the future that scares us so badly. So what if I could tell you that Christ's coming, the baby that was born on the starry night in Bethlehem and laid in a manger, what if I told you that that event, that night, predicts the future? You see, thousands of years ago, in the Garden of Eden, Having, been, having disobeyed the Lord and on the verge of being cast out of the garden, God made a promise to Eve. He promised Eve that her seed would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Just a, several generations later, he comes to Abraham and he promises Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation through whom all nations will be blessed. He comes to Moses and he says, through Moses, I will raise up a prophet even greater than you, a prophet that is upright, a prophet that will endure all generations, a prophet that will mediate, a prophet that will come before my people and come before me on their behalf. He goes to David and he says, I'm gonna raise from your lineage a king that will rest on your throne so that your throne will endure always. Through Isaiah, he says that there's going to be a baby that will be born, a baby that God will use to save his people, not just temporarily, not just from Babylon, not just from exile, but from their sin forever. And that that baby will become a suffering servant and by his stripes, his people will be healed. But for 400 years, there is silence. Silence. For 400 years, there is a penetrating, deafening silence. Thousands of years of promises. Thousands of years of prophecies hanging in the balance. Generation comes. And generation goes, and the baby is not born. The great prophet is not revealed. The king and the lineage of David is not upon the throne. Generation comes, generation goes, and the promises of God just hanging there. The people of God awaiting. The people of God losing hope. The people of God beginning to wonder and languish, is God actually going to do it? Is God actually going to? To come through. But then, but then, on a starry night in Bethlehem, in a quiet, in the quiet city of David, born into the lineage of David, is a baby. A baby that is born so humbly that he is laid in a feeding trough as a bed. And the great star of Bethlehem hangs over The king has come. The seed of Eve has arrived. The one who is the the promised uh, deliverer of the people of Abraham and all peoples has arrived. The one who will sit upon the throne of David, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, the one who will be the suffering servant and ultimately the victorious lion of Isaiah chapter 11. He has arrived. And the promises of God The word of God is proven true. You see, when Christ came in his first advent, he was the future. The future had finally arrived. The future had finally come. It had proven that God's word would not return void. It had proven that God would in fact stand by his promises. He had proved that God would in fact fulfill his prophecies. And so as all of us struggle with our futures, as all of us kind of plow through this fallen world and what tears away from our faces and bury the people that we love and struggle day in and day out just to kind of keep our heads above water, as we look to the future, we can know, we can know that. Christ is going to return. Final victory is going to arrive. Tears will be wiped away because God has sent his son. And having sent his son, we can be assured that he will send him again. Yes, amen. And so brothers and sisters, we rest. Even as the future hangs over us like a cloud, we rest. Even when x-rays hang over us like a cloud, we can rest. Even when we know that danger and destruction and catastrophe can be lurking around the corners of our lives, we rest. Because Christ has come. And having come, we know that he will yet come again. And so today what I want us to do is I want us to finish Advent by looking to the future. By looking to that day in which the sky will split, and the archangel will cry, and the trumpet will sound, and the Christ will return. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24 and 25, part of the Olivet Discourse, are some of the most stunning passages in all of our New Testaments. Some of the most difficult to interpret and yet some of the most life-giving, some of the most helpful. And I can think of no better place for us to be on this Christmas Eve. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to begin together in verse 36. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Would you stand with me as we read God's inerrant word together this morning? Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 36. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has sent over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, He will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and sufficient word this morning. You may be seated. When we come into Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is answering two questions for his disciples. His disciples have come to him and they have asked him two questions regarding the future. The first question is a question about the destruction of the temple. Christ had promised that the temple would be destroyed and it will be destroyed in AD 70. The second question is about the return of Christ. The disciples asked Jesus, point blank, will you give us a sign? Will you let us know when your return is imminent? Will you tell us, alert us, send us an iPhone notification of some sort so that we're gonna know that you're on your way back and we can all make sure that we're prepared. We can all make sure that we're vigilant. And so when we pick up in verse 36, it's the second question that we find Christ addressing. It's this question of a sign. Will there be a sign upon the return of Christ for the second coming of Christ? Now I think In light of all the kind of culture we have around us in the Christian world, like you go and you turn on your TV and you'll see these cats and they got like charts and they got graphs and they've got images. They've got all the deal. You can buy books, series of books. You can buy videos. You can do all of these things. And what most of them are doing is trying to tell you this is how you will know the return of Christ is coming, this is when he is coming. But I actually believe that that is the opposite of what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 24. I believe that Jesus is teaching the polar opposite of all of the charts. Now look, that's why I don't have book deals, okay? That's why nobody's coming to the Iron City Baptist Church asking Cody to write a book on the end times. Because I... What I have to say isn't going to sell books. I don't have charts. I don't have graphs. I don't have images. I have what Christ has said. And what did Christ say? Christ said, you will not know. You will not have any idea. You will not see it coming. It will be a surprise to you. It will be abrupt to you. It will be stunning to you. For I myself do not even know in this life when it is that I will return. The angels of glory do not know when it is that I will return. My father in heaven and my father in heaven alone is the one who knows when it is that I will return. So I think what we have Jesus saying is something that won't sell a book, Something that won't look good on a poster board, but instead saying it's gonna be a while. And you're not really gonna know. You're not gonna have an idea. You're not so so let me just kind of take an aside here, okay? If you open up a book and it says, This is happening, this is happening, this is happening, so Jesus is coming, throw the book away. Okay? Throw the book away. If you turn on your TV. And you hear a preacher saying, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. So in this generation, the the Lord is obviously coming. Turn off your television. Because why? Jesus has said explicitly, point blank, as clear as any words we have from all of the gospel accounts, you will not know when I am coming. In other words, disciples, there will be no sign. There will be no sign. I will not give you a sign of my imminent arrival. I will not give you a Facebook notification. I will not send something to your iPhone. I will not put it on a billboard. I will not mount something in the sky. I will not do any of those things. There will not be a sign. I'm going to come in a way that you don't see coming. Now, I think anytime we kind of delve into these subjects, there's some disclaimers that need to happen, okay? Okay. Now, these wouldn't have been needed a 1,000 years ago. These wouldn't have been needed 1,500 years ago. These kind of controversies didn't exist in the church at the time. But in our day, they are necessary. That one of the, I find that typically in the church, when we talk about the end times, there is one of two people that I'm talking to at all times, okay? You have one, that guy, that gal that just doesn't care, that just is indifferent. And you're probably indifferent because you've heard this abused. You've heard people make predictions. You've heard people like stand and, and point down at you and say, Jesus is coming today. And done all that thing. And so you've just kind of, you've kind of blocked it out. You've just kind of made it background noise. And I want to tell you something that if you were doing, you were in grave error. You were in grave error. For you are missing out on the victory that Christ's return offers to you. You are missing out on the worship that Christ's return offers to you. You are missing out on the urgency and the vigilance that Christ's return calls you to. So that, that, that is erroneous. That is a wrong way to see it. The other group of people that I typically see are people that think only about Christ's return, that talk only about Christ's return. And when they talk, they're thinking charts. When they're, when they're talking, they're thinking like line graphs, right? Connect the dots through the, through the church and into the future and into Israel and into the United States and into Bitcoin, right? Like they're, they're connecting all of the dots and reconnect, reconfiguring the Roman empire and doing all of those things, right? And you were looking at it wrongly. Like, if that's your approach to the end times, nowhere do we find those types of things in the New Testament. Nowhere do we find that type of emphasis on the end times in the New Testament. Instead, Christ's return is to be for twofold reason. One, for our hope. For our hope. Why is revelation so clear about the end time? It was given to a persecuted church. It was given to a suffering church that they might press on and endure to the victory of Christ. Secondly, it is given to call us to action, to call us to vigilance. Because however much time we have, we don't really know how much time we have However much, whatever God has called us to do, we better do it today because Christ's return is imminent. Christ's return is coming when we do not know, when we do not see, when we do not expect. And so what I want us to do is I want us to look at Christ's second advent today and I want us to see what it is, some principles that we can learn, some things that can help us as we go about living our lives from Matthew 24, from the second advent of Christ. The first one is this. Jesus is coming back even when it doesn't seem like it. Jesus is coming back even when it doesn't seem like it. One of the things that I have always appreciated about the ministry of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't pull punches, right? Like like Jesus is never the guy that just tells you what you want to hear so that you can go about your life. Jesus is never the guy that talks to his disciples and just kind of gives them a warm and fuzzy message. Jesus is always kind. Jesus is always gentle. Jesus is always patient. But Jesus is always direct. Jesus is always truthful. Jesus tells you what the truth of the matter is. And so his disciples come to him and they ask him for a sign. They ask him to tell how they can kind of be aware of the imminence of his return. And what does Jesus tell them? Honestly, guys, it's going to be a while. It's going to be a while. In fact, you are going to believe that I'm not going to return. There are going to be times in your weakness. There are going to be moments and generations that pass in which you are going to be uncertain if I am going to return at all. In verse 44, he says, I am going to come when you do not expect me to come. And we look in the parable that he gives at the end in uh, the latter verses of our text today. And he tells the parable of a single, uh, single servant who has before him an opportunity. An opportunity to honor his master while his master is away or an opportunity to, to, uh, to shame his master or to embarrass his master while he is away. And how does, the, how does he say the wicked servant thinks? He says the wicked servant thinks that because my master is gone for so long, Because his absence is so lengthy, then I can know that I will live and do as I want to do. I will drink with the drunkards. I will party with the partiers. I will berate and beat down my fellow slave because my master's return is so far into the future. And I think what we have Jesus here saying clearly to his disciples 2,000 years ago is this is going to take some time. This is going to take some time. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but I'm going to tell you there's going to be days, there's going to be times, perhaps there will even be generations in which it's going to feel like I'm not going to come at all. In other words, the promise of Christ, the promise of God, the victory of Christ, the ultimate victory of the church, is going to feel delayed. It's going to feel delayed. Now, I would imagine if we were to go around the house this morning and we were to speak honestly with each believer, each of you that has been a Christian for any length of time, then you would say this has been your experience with the promises of God. This has been your experience with the promises of God. That the promises of God the prophecies of God, the good news of God, all the things that he offers to us and he promises to us, so often in our lives, they feel delayed, don't they? It feels like they're never going to happen. It feels like it's never going to take root. It feels like it's never going to come about. You can think about Noah, right? He uses Noah as an example here. So, the, so he's saying that I don't know the day or the hour and he's making a comparison with Noah saying essentially just like Noah didn't know the day or the hour of the flood so I don't know the day or the hour of the flood so you won't know the day or the hour of the flood. So you can think about Noah. Noah is told by God that judgment is coming. Noah is told by God that I am going to judge the earth, and I am going to judge the earth greatly. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go build an ark and always stay on a point of readiness to come and to fill the ark. But Noah builds the ark. Not, this is not a week's project, you understand. Th- this is not even a month-long project. This is a years-long project to build an ark without cranes and modern machinery and a great workforce. Remember, the generation of Noah did not believe in Noah. So you likely have eight people building this enormous boat that is gonna house the species of the world, okay? So we're talking a years long process. And then the boat is completed and we don't really know, but I think what Jesus is kind of indicating to us is it took a while. So you got this giant boat, Noah has been preaching to his generation that judgment is coming and that they should repent. He's got this huge boat sitting on a mountain somewhere and there's no flood and there's no rain. The promises of God felt delayed. The promises of God felt delayed. How many times do you say, Noah woke up and thought, is today the day? Is today the day? Are we finally gonna have the flood today? Or how many times at the end of the day when a, another day had passed and the flood had not yet came that did Noah go to bed thinking, did I miss it? Did I miss it? Is, is, is that really God? Or did I just eat bad spaghetti? Like, like what's the story here? What's going down here? Like, like, is it ever actually going to happen? You understand it was the same way for the coming of the Messiah, wasn't it? Thousands of years, millennia of prophecies given. Promises made. The child will be born. My people will be rescued. You will be delivered. generation came and generation went and the Messiah never came. The promises of God felt delayed. It felt like the, the word of God, the promise of God, the victory of God had been paused. I wonder how many of you can identify with that. I wonder how many of you, you, you look at your life and you've endured suffering on this earth and it hurts and it's hard and it's difficult and you know that God's word says that all of this is going to work together for your good. But it feels like that promise is just on pause. It feels like it's just on pause. It feels like it's not going to be. You know that the, the Word of God promises that for those who follow after Christ, they will draw near to Christ and have a peace that is without understanding. And yet you find anxiety in your heart and that promise just feels like it's on pause. You know that it says that those who grieve with Christ grieve differently than the world. They grieve as those with hope. And yet you find that difficult and it just feels like the goodness of God, the promises of God, the provision of God have been paused in your life. Why? Why does God work that way? Why does God delay the fulfillment of his promises? Why doesn't God just immediately bring victory upon the earth in this moment? Why doesn't God immediately reveal to you how all of your suffering and all of your travails and all of your difficulty will be used for your good and for His glory? Why doesn't He do that immediately? You see, I think it's because God's delay is used to reveal God's people. God's delay is used to reveal God's people. Think about the, the, the people that we're, we, we see here in our text. So you have two people, probably out of the same family, two men, and they're going to the field and they're working the field. And it says that that suddenly Christ appears and, and one is taken and one is left, right? In other words, they go there day after day after day. They're doing what they do. They're doing their thing. But one is swept away in judgment and one is left to reign and rule with Christ. Then you have two women that go to the mill, probably the same situation, most likely relatives. They go there day in and day out. Every day just feels normal. Every day feels monotonous. Every day feels the same. But they go to the mill and they provide for their families. They provide for their communities. And they do what they're supposed to do. But one is swept away in judgment and one yet remains. Then you have the servant, right? The wicked servant who's or not the wicked servant, the servant that is left to choose between productivity and laziness, between righteousness and wickedness, as his as his master is away for an extended period of time. And Jesus says in that parable that that time, that time of delay, that time while his master is away will determine whether or not he will be going to a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth or whether he will rule and reign with Christ and enjoy the blessings of his master's house. That is, God uses his delay God uses the delay of his will. God uses the the lengthy awaiting of his church to reveal the true church, to reveal those who are his true disciples. See, here's what waiting does. Waiting either reveals unbelief or it draws out faith. Waiting either reveals unbelief or it draws out faith. He said the the greatest marker of true conversion is time. It's time. That's why an elder is not to be a recent convert, right? That's why a deacon is not to be a recent convert. They are to be people that have proven themselves and have walked with the Lord over periods of time. That's why in Matthew chapter 10, as he's talking to his disciples, he says, Those who endure to the end will be saved. In other words, those who prove over time that the, that the gospel has really taken root in their hearts and begin to bear fruit of the gospel and demonstrate a hunger and a thirst for righteousness over time. Those who draw near to the Lord over time. Those who mature and grow in the faith and love the Lord more today than they did yesterday or last year and pursue the Lord over a lifetime, over a pattern, over a time of sanctification and maturation, time will prove whether or not they are a wicked servant or a righteous one. Time will prove whether they are a fruitful one or they are a lazy one. Time will prove whether or not they will go to the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where they will be cut into pieces, or whether they will be blessed and enjoy the very presence of Christ for all eternity. Time. God uses time to either reveal unbelief Or to draw out faith. In your life, what's the truth? In your life, what's the truth? Man, there's gonna be days where you're up and down. That's not what I'm saying. There's gonna be days in which you kind of just throw up your hands and you're like, promise what, man? I quit today. But you know what? The disciple of Christ. The one in whom the Spirit rests and dwells, the one in whom the guide and the comforter and the helper lives, cannot stay there. They cannot stay there. They refuse to stay there. So you go to a funeral you didn't expect to go to, and there's questions in your mind. And there may be hostility in your spirit. There may be anger there. There may be lament there. There's pain there. You know what the Lord will do over time in the heart of the Christian? He will use that to draw out their faith. So that they say, where I cannot see, I will go anywhere, anyway, oh Lord. Even though I know not where I go, Lord, you are the faithful shepherd that will walk with me through the valley of the shadow of death. You go and you see the diagnosis that you didn't see coming. The doctor comes in and he reveals that you've got a terminal illness or a lifelong illness. And man, it's just not going to get better from here. And in the moment, you might be weak, and in the moment, you might struggle. But over time, you go again to the promises of God, and you say, God, I know you will use this for your glory. I know you will use this for my good. I know. And I don't like it, and I don't get it, and I wouldn't choose it. But God, I will walk with you. And so you're suffering. The delay of God's goodness, it seems. The delay of God's promises draws out your faith and shows you to be a child of the living God but then what about the other side no doubt there are people who used to fill these chairs who are no longer here and they are no longer here because they looked around their life and they believe that they perceive a lack of the love of God a lack of the kindness of God a lack of the deliverance of God a a lack of the power of God that God had failed them so they have fallen away They have no interest, they have a bitter taste in their mouth, and they will not return. Their unbelief was not created, their unbelief was revealed. It was unveiled. There are some of you who are living in secret sin. And in your mind, you have gotten away with it because you have not reaped immediate consequences into your life. And so God's promise has been delayed. God's promise of consequence has been delayed in your life. And in your mind, perhaps you think you've gotten away with it. And so you go deeper and deeper and deeper into your wickedness. Your unbelief is revealed. Your unbelief is revealed for the Christian. For the one who has the Spirit of God, God's kindness leads to repentance. God's long-suffering, the revelation of your sin, the the realization that you have not suffered greatly for your wickedness and unrighteousness draws you to the grace of God and to the mercies of God to throw yourself on the cross yet again and be washed from the blood. See, God uses the delay of his promises to draw out faith or to reveal unbelief. So, you see, Christian, I got good news for you this morning. I got good news for you this morning. You're struggling, you're fighting, you're clawing, you're scratching, you're not sure every day that you want to get up. Take heart. Take heart because Jesus is coming, even though it doesn't feel like it sometimes. You have difficulty facing the day. You have difficulty facing the scenario in your family. You have difficulty facing the difficulties in your marriage. Take heart, even though it doesn't feel like it. Even though Christ seems delayed, Christ will return. Victory will arrive. Grieving will stop. Christ is coming, Christian. Christ is coming, even though it doesn't feel like it. So let him draw your faith out. Let him draw your faith out. And as he draws out your faith and you prove yourself faithful by the power and grace that he provides, all you are doing is mounding up treasures that you will enjoy forever. But unbeliever, hear this not so much as an encouragement, but as a warning. As a warning. Are you sinning and believing that you've gotten away with it? Or is God's delay revealing your unbelief? I know it doesn't feel like it and I know it seems as though it's all for naught but I'm telling you even though it doesn't seem like it Christ will return and you will bow before his judgment seat oh friend and neighbor would you let his kindness lead you to repentance second thing I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is coming back and true Christians live like it Jesus is coming back, and true Christians live like it. Jesus labors in his explanation to his disciples. Jesus labors to teach his disciples the suddenness of his return. He labors to teach them that he is going to return, and he is going to return suddenly, shockingly, abruptly. He talks about the day of Noah again, right? And so he's talking about the the day of Noah. And he says, how did the flood come? On the day that the flood come, were people not still marrying? Were people not still eating? Were there not still office Christmas parties with dirty Santa happening? Were there not still ugly sweater contests going on? Like, were, were were there not still lawsuits happening? Were there not still disagreements among spouses happening? Did people not just get up that morning and go to work like it was a normal day? Yeah, Noah had told them the flood was coming. God had promised them that judgment was arriving, and yet the people just went about their merry way completely unaware, completely unassuming, not caring, dismissing what God had said. But then the raindrops fell, and the floodwaters rose, and that ark was lifted up off that rocky mountain. And all of the ambivalence to the judgment of God, all of the indifference to the prophecies of Noah turned to screams of horror, turned to shouts of fear. And Noah and his his family gathered on the ark and experienced and tasted the mercy of God and sang praises and hymns to God. The rest of creation was filled with piercing screams. And he says, so will be my return so will be my return. You may be at work. You may be at the ball field. You may be walking the, the halls of your high school. You may be on your way to P.E., you could be in a spat with your, uh, your spouse. You could be on the day of your retirement. You could be on the day of your graduation from college. God is not concerned with whether or not you get to achieve all the dreams that you have. God is, a, 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 is concerned only with the accomplishment of his will. So suddenly, abruptly, abruptly, In a way that will take away your breath. In a way that will drain the oxygen and the blood flow from the faces of every man, woman, and child. At some point, the sky will split, the trumpet will sound, and Christ will appear for his church. And so what's the point? You better be ready. You better be ready. Christ is going to come suddenly and you better be awakened. You better be prepared. You better be readied. Think about Noah. Noah creates a boat and then it just hangs out, right? We've talked about that. Just hangs out. But Noah had to live in a perpetual state of readiness, didn't he? He had to live in a perpetual state of readiness. Like he couldn't load the animals on before the rain came. He couldn't load all the perishable foods on before the rain came. He didn't know what day it would come. He didn't know what year it would come. He didn't know if he'd have grandkids. He didn't didn't know what the situation was going to happen when the flood finally came. All he knew was it was coming and he had to be ready. And so Noah hangs out day in and day out. Ready at a moment's notice with his family to go and to load up all the species of earth and all the perishable goods that they would need and to get onto the ark and to go and to be able to be delivered by the mercies of God and know firsthand the kindnesses of God. And Jesus says, This is the picture of the church. This is the picture of the church. This is what it will look like to be a child or a woman of God. This is what it will look like to walk in these last days, in the days of the apostolic church. This is how it will appear. You will live in perpetual readiness. You will live at a moment's notice to meet your king in the air. to to ascend the throne with him. You will be prepared at a moment's notice to watch the dead in Christ rise from the grave in celebration. You will be ready at a moment's notice to offer your life before the Lord to give an account for yourself. To give an account that hopefully will not be based on your merit and your righteousness, but on the righteousness given and imputed to you by Christ Jesus himself. You must be ready at a moment's notice. And you know what's something that the Bible teaches and that our own experience teaches us? That to live ready, to live wisely, is to look like a fool for now. Right? To live wisely, to live with a vigilant life, To live ready at all times in a perpetual state of readiness is to look like a fool to an unbelieving world. Can I just tell you something? If the Holy Spirit lives in you, if you are a Christian that is called to walk against the currents of your culture and the Holy Spirit dwells in you and is transforming you and the world can make sense of your life, you're living it wrong. You're living it wrong. Because as we live lives that are ready for the return of Christ, they should look outrageous. They should look abnormal. In Noah's day, as he preached that judgment was coming, as he preached that the flood waters would rise, the people mocked him and reviled him. The people made fun of him and laughed at him and told him that he was wasting his time and he was wasting his life. You can imagine that if you have the wicked servant and you have the wise servant, That the wise servant every day, even though the master isn't there, he goes to work and he works just as vigilantly, he works just as diligently, just as hard. And the wicked servant's over there, and man, he's having a a party. He's having a Merry Christmas. And he's looking at the vigilant, wise, prepared servant. He's like, hey, man, why are you hustling like that? What's your story? Why why, why are you just kidding? He's not coming. He's been away for years. What's your deal, man? Just relax. Stop being so over the top. Can I tell you that if you live like Christ is returning in front of an unbelieving world, they're going to think you're crazy. You go down the halls of White Plains High School and you live as though Christ is the one to whom you're going to give an account and before whom the only one whose approval you want, you're going to look crazy. You're going to get mocked. You're going to get laughed at. They're going to tell you that you're too intense and you're holier than thou, and that you're over the top. Because to live wise now is to look like a fool now. You live before your unbelieving husband, or your unbelieving wife, and you live as though Christ's approval is all that matters to you. You offer Him your life, and you give it to Him totally and fully. And they're going to look at you and they're going to say, man, can't you just back off? Can't you just skip a week? Can't you just cool it down? Can't you stop being a holy roller? Can't you stop being so intense? Can't you just be a normal Christian like everybody else? Because to live ready, to live wisely, is to look like a fool for now. For now. But you see, I think that the reason that Christ... Doesn't tell us his return. The reason that the Lord doesn't reveal that to us is because he's given us that as a gift. He's given us that as a gift. God not telling us the day or the hour is a God given gift to his children that we might live and live well. That we might live and live well. If God told us, if he gave us a way, like if he did give us an algorithm or some kind of formula that we could like add all the the numbers from Genesis and multiply it by the numbers of Revelation and come up with a date and like figure that out, do you know what we would do? We would waste our lives. We would waste our lives. We, We would, date predictors have proven this. They go out, they sell all of their stuff and they quit their jobs and they stop going about all the things that God has created man and woman to do. They start wasting the hours that God has given to them because they think they figured out something that the rest of the world hasn't figured out and and they kind of camouflage that with evangelistic zeal but that burns out anyway. It's not real, it's not genuine. No. The greatest gift, the greatest opportunity that you have right now to please God is with your life. It's with your life. It's getting up and going to work and praising God there. It's raising your children and teaching them to praise God. It's having a marriage that models the gospel. It's to live day in, day out by the total dependence and allegiance to Christ. So God doesn't tell us so that we won't waste our lives. I think the other, the other side of that coin, the other, the other hand of that, is that if we knew the time, we would be tempted even more than we naturally are toward complacency. Toward complacency. See, I think the reason that Jesus is telling his disciples primarily that they won't know the time, is because he knows that his disciples will be tempted to wait until the imminence of his return, and when they get the sign, they'll jump into action. And At that point, they'll begin to spread the gospel. At that point, they'll begin to live lives of righteousness and holiness and goodness. But God is not interested in a church like that. God is interested in a church that day by day, moment by moment lives in dependence of him. Lives holy lives not because of some merit system they believe is in heaven, but because they love God. Because they love him with all of their hearts and with all of their minds and with all of their strengths. And loving him, the overflow of that is a righteous, devoted life that brings him honor and glory. Complacency is a thief, y'all. It's a thief. It robs you of your God-given potential. It robs you of the intimate walk with God that he offers to you. It robs you of a satisfying life. Have you ever felt more satisfied after a day of Netflix than you did after a day of hard work? It robs you of the opportunity to use and leverage your life for something that actually means something. Church, if we're going to accomplish anything for the gospel if we're going to have any kind of impact in our community, we must learn to hate complacency. We must learn to hate complacency. We must resolve before God to use our lives for his glory and praise his name that he has put an arrow in our quiver. He has put a bullet in our gun. He has given us a weapon that wars against wasted lives and complacent lives. And it's this. Today he may come. Today he may come. Yeah, it feels like an ordinary day. It feels like an ordinary Christmas Eve. There's nothing special mounted and painted across the sky. There's no notification showing up on your phone. It has nothing to do with Bitcoin. No, today he may come come because today he has endeavored to come because today he has planned to come today the trumpet may sound today the angels may cry today the sky may split, today Christ may return for his church so church let us be readied, let us be vigilant let us be found living lives of holiness and glory to the Lord Jesus is coming back and true Christians will live like it lastly Jesus is coming back To judge and to bless. Jesus is coming back to judge and to bless. Do you hear the words of judgment that Jesus is speaking? Like, look, I know some of y'all just come to hang out with us on Christmas Eve. Praise God for you so glad. And I I realize that like some of the things that I'm saying sound a bit archaic. They sound a bit outdated. They sound like something like old school preachers used to talk about and stuff like that. But I'm here to tell you, dear friend and neighbor, I'm glad that you're here, but these are the words of our Lord. These are the words of Jesus Christ. The one who came as a baby born to a virgin who lived a perfect life to take your place and who was raised from the dead to over 500 witnesses. These are his words and it is only loving and it is only kind if I tell you that they are real and they are there and they are true and you can avoid their harm and enjoy their blessing. But do you hear the words of judgment here? He says that one man, two men are working one is taken away, one is left. One is judged, one is blessed. Two women are working, one is taken away, one is judged, or one one is blessed. One is judged, one is blessed, right? You have two servants, or one servant who, who has a decision that he's going to make. Will he be blessed, or will he be sawn in two? Will he enjoy the the kindnesses of God and the provision of God? Or will he go to a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth where he has a view of God's promises but no opportunity of God's presence? Judging. You see, Jesus is the dividing edge of eternity. Do you realize that? That Jesus is the knife that slices through every generation. And you're not going to be in the middle of the blade. You're not going to be in the middle of the edge. You will be on this side or that. You will be on the side of judgment or on the side of blessing. You will be left or you will be taken. You will be judged or you will be blessed. You will be received or you will be condemned. Jesus is the dividing edge. And your belief upon his return will determine which side of that you are on. And so I come to you this morning as a humble preacher, with nothing but the words of Jesus to say. And I say, be blessed. Be blessed. Be blessed because you choose Christ. Be blessed because the baby was born. Be blessed because Christ will return. Be blessed. Be on the right side of history in the future. Be on the right side with Christ. Come. Don't be judged. Be blessed. Turn from your sins. Enjoy the kindnesses of God. Let it lead you into repentance. Be blessed this Christmas Eve and let it be one that you remember forever. Let's pray together.